The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone. I'm Becky Strum, Managing Editor at Mansion Global, and joining me today is George Ratu, Senior Economist at Realtor.com. And he is here to discuss today uh, the latest Wall Street Journal, Realtor.com Emerging Housing Markets Index, among other real estate topics. Just a quick note to our audience who are watching us live. Um, we have a bit of a wi- slow Wi-Fi connection, so we are doing it without video today. I uh, apologize if uh, that uh, is sad for anyone. <laughs> Welcome back, George. Thanks so much, Becky. It's it's a joy being here with you today, especially on a Friday at the end of a wild week. Yes. <laughs> um, and a quick reminder to our viewers that you may ask questions at any point, um, and we'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, so just quickly for some background, for the uninitiated, the Emerging Housing Markets Index is a collaboration between uh, the various newsrooms here at Dow Jones and our data gurus, both here and at Realtor.com, as well as Realtor's phenomenal economists and their clearinghouse of U.S. housing data. So um, the really the purpose of the index is to help buyers decide the best place or places to invest in real estate. And so just to start us off, and you, if you've listened to us talk about emerging housing markets before, you may have gotten this feel, but George, if you could sort of um, tell us from a pure investment perspective, what kinds of factors indicate future upside in a housing market? Or in other words, what do we look at to predict sustainable house price growth? That's a very good question, Becky. And I think one that for many people is very timely. And from an investment standpoint, when looking at real estate, there are at least two factors that I know investors very much consider. Number one is the outlook for price growth, right? They, they're looking for price appreciation in the value of their in the asset. And two, and importantly for, for many investors, is the cash flow from the property, particularly if those investors are looking to rent it out. Ideally, I think most investors would like to have both, you know, move up, right? They want price appreciation plus cash flow, but sometimes market conditions favor one over the other. And at least to to the uh, main part of your question, what really should investors look for? Here, market fundamentals are paramount. And I'll start with, with obviously the local economy, because ultimately a strong economy, so strong employment, lots of job growth in a particular market is a generally a positive indicator that the real estate market will do very well. And in fact, a lot of the markets on our emerging housing markets list very much are in that category of strong economies, well diversified, very low unemployment rate. So that's one aspect. The other aspect um, has to do with the real estate fundamentals. How um, strong is the demand? And generally, the strong economy will bring solid demand. And importantly, how supplied or oversupplied the market is, right? A market that may be oversupplied for some investors may not be as attractive because perhaps the price growth may be um, obviously you know, tempered 
What, of course, uh, we've been living through, particularly the last two years during this pandemic, is a market that's severely undersupplied. So for most intents and purposes, uh, we've seen markets across the country with very strong growth. So to me, these would be the main factors, I think, for investors would be important. Right. And so really to hit on those, and I'll, and then I'll get to our next question, George, for the index, the teams um, at Realtor in the Wall Street Journal came up with a sort of list. And in addition to those housing, uh, you know, the housing metrics, which uh, uh, Realtor supplies, we also um, include in the rankings um, measures of cost of living, lifestyle amenities, such as prevalence of Starbucks or a Whole Foods, for example, in a, a given metro area, and then other measures such as small business data, as well as the portion of the population born outside the U.S., which tends to strongly correlate with economic vitality. Um, so, George, the Naples, Florida topped the most recent rankings, which came out this week. Um, and in fact, the top of the list, both for the overall general rankings and for the luxury slice that we do uh, for Mansion Global, which is a much smaller list, those lists were totally dominated by Florida. In particular, uh, more affordable cities outside of, say, Miami. Um, George, could you tell us uh, a little bit about why secondary cities in Florida have performed so well? Certainly, Becky. I think Florida during this pandemic specifically has been extremely attractive to many people, obviously both those who live there, but even more so, we've seen a significant migration toward Florida from other cities across the country. So what makes Florida so attractive? Well, let's start with the obvious, right? It has mm -hmm. generally great weather. Uh, so it, that is very conducive to outdoors activities. And the, we've seen during this pandemic the access to the outdoors has become a real critical part of what people are looking for. I think for many Americans, the pandemic has led to a re-evaluation of the way we live, we work, we uh, spend time. And I think uh, quality of life and outdoors as part of that has become uh, crucial. So there, obviously, Florida wins. Let's do a, a, you know, some of the other Sunbelt states that are in, in our um, rankings. However, Complementing that, um, what Florida offers is number one, strong local economies. Right. I mean, just you know, taking Naples for example uh, as a market, um, it has had growth in the local economy in terms of jobs. Its unemployment rate as of November was down to two point nine percent, so okay. well below the national average. And in fact, looking across the other markets, whether it's Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, Northport. Uh, most of these markets have unemployment rates below the national. And that's important because it's one thing to move to a market because housing is cheap, but it's mm -hmm. another thing to be able to sustain quality life. And I think that's where Florida shines. In addition to that, and I think very important, both for folks looking at retirement and a fixed income lifestyle, as well as for upper bracket families who have looked at the potential of higher taxes, Florida does not charge a state income taxes. Right. Um, that is very important. And so I think that constellation of factors has been very attractive. And when you throw in, obviously, a relatively more affordable housing market on top of that, it has obviously made it um, a, a place where many people have moved over the past two years. Um, and I do want to call out, so this data, the latest index, focuses on the fourth quarter of 2021. And um, there... 
there does seem to be a sense of seasonality to the top of that list in the sense that we have uh, Florida and other um, beachy, sunny locations, such as in California. There's even, I think, a Hawaii market um, uh, fairly high up in the rankings. Um, uh, so do we typically see a shift uh, towards second home purchases or warmer weather locations in the November, December months? We certainly do. Historically, and I mean by historically prior to 2020 and the pandemic, there has certainly been a seasonal component to a lot of activity, starting with sort of the, the macro side, right? We have a lot of activity ramp up during spring, peak home buying season in the summer, and then a gradual slowdown during the fall and sort of the bottoming out of activity in the winter. But in conjunction with that, very uh, astutely, as, as you're observing, uh, we have interest in warmer locations during the winter months. Uh, you know, the, the colloquial snowbirds flocking to, to Florida in the winter was obviously something that, that's, you know, been in place for, for decades. Mm -hmm. And we're very much seeing some of that uh, as we look at these markets. For me, I'll be honest, this is a really uh, encouraging sign. Why? The last two years with the pandemic, we've had such unusual, uh, obviously, market activity due to the mm -hmm. broader, you know, health and economic concerns. To see a return towards more normal trends is a real positive development. That's something I had not thought of. That is very interesting. It is nice to see things normalize. <laughs> Anything normal is good. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, and that's all not to downplay the very real boom in Florida that we've obviously seen. And something our reporters have heard a lot from Florida real estate agents is that um, we're not just talking about New Yorkers or Canadians moving to Miami, which is sort of the stereotype. And the pool of buyers headed to the sun Sunshine State has vastly expanded. Um, you know, in terms of real, Realtor has lots of data on, on this sort of thing. You know, what do we see in terms of where people are coming from in uh, for you know, Florida's top cities, George? So here, Becky, you're absolutely right. The, the the pool of people looking to Florida has now expanded. You're right. New York City, obviously, and, and South Florida have a very special relationship that goes back, you know, decades. But beyond that, I, I looked at the cross-market demand that Realtor.com produces uh, quarterly, where we look at where shoppers who come to Realtor.com are uh, looking from into a particular market. And I look for, you know, Naples, Orlando, Jacksonville, Tampa. Interesting to notice how the share of out-of-state views varies. I mean, for, for example, in Miami, 29% uh, of views come from out-of-state, meaning the, the remainder are a combination of local, Florida residents, and some international. In Naples, by comparison, 59% of shoppers are looking from outside uh, Florida, which obviously uh, significant. Orlando at 34%, Jacksonville 41%. So clearly Florida is attracting a lot of out-of-state interest. So where do people come from? In addition to New York City, uh, they come from places like Chicago, Boston, mm -hmm. Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and even West Coast, Seattle, um, a, a real uh, strong um, uh, share of views in all these major markets I mentioned are beginning to also come from the West Coast. Uh, so to me, that's a clear indication that there's more than just sunshine and, um, you know, the, the low cost of living. It's the entire package between economic growth, uh, affordable housing, and of course, the other factors as well. 
Right. So, um, you know, besides coastal markets, another sort of trend that emerged in this fourth quarter data was a stronger showing among more expensive metros in general um, that moved up the list and replaced some more affordable locations such as Elkhart, Indiana, which led the list in the third quarter. Um, so what could be driving the greater activity to a sort of bigger pricier cities? We are seeing really, in a sense, a rebound in the broader economy. Mm. And I say that because what we saw during the pandemic, particularly 2020 and even part of 2021, was a uh, broad move away from high-density cities as people sought uh, more space, more more uh, safety, right? Social distancing and health concerns obviously were front and center. What we're seeing now, we're seeing that move toward normalization and big cities remain obviously dominant employment centers. And so along with those, we're seeing real estate activity begin to also pick up in these larger metropolitan areas. And the one interesting nuance for me uh, looking at the data has been to notice how uh, the adjacent, or I should say cities within a two-hour commute mm -hmm from major employment centers have become really uh, attractive cities. It used to be that prior to pandemic, people would go out 45 minutes to an hour, yeah. right? Now that radius has expanded roughly to a two hour um, you know, window. And so that's interesting because it tells me big cities will remain attractive, because strong economy, strong employment. And we're beginning to see that in the data as well. That's really interesting. So when thinking about sort of the future, you know, expanding your uh, your radius, so to speak, of what a suburb or, you know, what a what a commuter town is, you know, bringing that out even further. I mean, that's that's probably very good for economies, uh, you know, even two hours out. I'm thinking like the Hudson Valley of, of uh, New York, outside of New York City, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, there was, I think I said this earlier, but there's considerably more crossover between the general emerging housing markets index and the luxury cut that we take out, which is focuses on about 60 or so metro areas um, and includes, you know, strong million dollar housing markets. Um, one of the theories your colleague Danielle Hale offered us when we spoke with her for our story was that, um, that signaled that maybe some affluent individuals were reacting to stock market volatility at the end of last year and investing in or buying for personal use real estate. Um, is that a trend we've seen before that in times of stock market uncertainty or general market uncertainty, um, people turn to residential real estate? That is certainly something we have seen before, and it very much is likely to be at play right now as well. And I'll, I mentioned that because to your point, right, we've seen incredible volatility from roughly September onward over the last few months. Even 2022 started with, with a significant yes. you know, sell-off. We, we've all watched the roller coaster, right? And for, for obviously a lot of investors, particularly upper income uh, brackets and more affluent, they are always extremely mindful of hedging. And now, right now they have several things to hedge against. Number one, obviously, the, the volatility in, in stock markets. Uh, they have fairly low, and they've had for a while, fairly low returns in the bond investments. And on top of that, 
we've seen inflation really accelerate, right? With right. December's data, uh, obviously, you know, 7%, even the Fed's, uh, you know, personal consumption expenditure increases, uh, which the Fed uses for, for the inflation gauge has actually been quite strong. We saw that this week. So for affluent individuals, real estate absolutely offer that hedge. It's mm -hmm. a more stable investment, particularly given how uh, undersupplied the market is. So the danger in most markets of having a lot of, you know, homes uh, suddenly, particularly new homes come to market and, and dilute that, that uh, you know, value is fairly low. So I think that some of the, uh, the, the shifts we saw in the emerging market index uh, very well might be doing high price markets to some of this. And let's not forget, even affluent individuals many times will leverage financing right. as a as a way to, to uh, acquire a home, even if they can afford to pay cash. And given mortgage rates are as low as they are, and yet the prospect of them rising, it wouldn't be surprising that many folks might want to take advantage of these, lock in a fixed rate for a foreseeable future and be able to use that as an additional inflation hedge. Right, right. Um, and another theory that was offered um, is that the strong showing in Florida and other high priced markets on the rankings this particular quarter um, might indicate a return of foreign buyers um, who tend to gravitate towards larger cities. Um, you know, I guess you know, where does this cohort really make a difference in terms of adding to an already, as we've mentioned today, competitive markets? Where do international buyers tend to go? That is a, a, always an important question for real estate markets, because to your point, there are certain markets which are a lot more dependent on international buyers. And here, generally uh, and historically, gateway cities were really the, the places where most uh, international buyers would congregate, think, you know, New York City, um, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Miami. Uh, and these very much remain on, uh, I think, the, the forefront for a lot of uh, investors and, and generally international buyers. Florida, in fact, is one of those destinations where we've had many buyers from other countries uh, purchase second homes, vacation homes. And to me, the interesting over the years, the interesting thing to note is the concentration, like the West Coast of Florida, I think Tampa, Naples, some of those markets, yeah. very attractive to European buyers, yeah, we, whether it's the United Kingdom, whether it's Germany or France, East Coast and Southern part of, of Florida attracted a lot of Central South American buyers. Uh, and, and then, of course, we have Asian buyers that have looked at uh, San Francisco, uh, Seattle, Los Angeles, the one thing I will point out, and we've noticed this right before the pandemic, the prior two years, international buyers started also expanding their horizons across U.S. markets. So we saw markets like Dallas, Austin, Nashville, Atlanta really rise in terms of, of visibility for mm -hmm. a lot of buyers. And I think here there's a combination of factors that I, it's worth keeping in mind. One, of course, for some of these markets, they they, they may be vacation destinations, right. uh, you know, think Phoenix. For others, however, it's the proliferation of investments from companies and businesses. Think here of the fact that Toyota relocated its North American headquarters to Plano, Texas a while back. That's brought an entire constellation of part suppliers and other Japanese companies to the area. Right. Think of the fact that we have Korean auto manufacturers that located operations in um, Alabama and Georgia, the Carolinas. 
all of those are bringing not only the companies, but they're bringing employees, they're bringing families, and importantly, a lot of other companies that all um, work in that space, which, as, as I said, really widened the appeal of a lot of the uh, smaller markets for international buyers. That's really interesting. So it will be, yeah, it will be interesting to see how that profile changes over time, because I do feel like the the list of international, uh, you know, cities where international buyers are headed as is so dominated by places like Miami and, and uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York. But of course, like that is diversifying and, and it will be interesting to see who the winners are there. Um, we do have a question from the audience, Steve, uh, and we've talked about this before uh, a audience member, Steve is asking, in terms of the trend of people migrating to suburbs, I'm seeing in the news that people are returning to cities such as New York and that real estate and rent are going back up to pre-pandemic levels there. So is the trend of moving to the suburbs, suburbs still happening or do you think that was a pa- pandemic fad and will people continue to choose big cities versus smaller cities? Mm, that's a very timely question. I appreciate Steve asking it. I think we're seeing really a combination of factors. Let's start with number one. There was an absolute immediate, and you could call it knee-jerk, but naturally mm-hmm. so, reaction to flee the cities, right? When you need to social distance, a high-density environment is not exactly the place people wanted to be. So there was the initial reaction to flee to the suburbs for that reason. Uh, and for a lot of young people, the allure of the big city remains there. And I think we're seeing that return, right? It's, it's sort of like water being displaced and returning back to its yeah. uh, you know, path. Absolutely, cities will remain attractive. However, I will note number two, and this is important, the one factor that drove the renaissance in downtowns across the country over the last decade and a half have been millennials. Mm-hmm. The largest generation in US history, they really flocked to the cities to start and build their careers. And a decade, a decade and a half later, many of them found they still could not afford to purchase uh, a a home in the city. And given the fact that most millennials now are moving into their 30s and the oldest are actually turning 41 this year, their stage of life has shifted. They have families, they have children. Um, In that regard, when, you know, these parents think about schools, think about quality of life, think about neighborhoods, the suburbs have really um, emerged as a very attractive destination. So I think that the um, uh, migration towards the suburbs for older millennials is very much going to continue. The one twist to that, and I think for me, very positive, today's suburbs do not look the same as, you know, prior <laughs> generation suburbs. Yes. We've seen an incredible mix of real estate development, higher density, mixed use, right? We have condos, we have townhouses, single family homes, intermixed with suburban office parks, real estate, experiential real estate, green spaces, and transit hubs, whether bike lanes, buses, or metro. This has made for many millennials who love Manhattan or San Francisco um, or downtown Chicago, has made their transition to these suburbs a lot more seamless. So I see that continuing. In fact, I see this sort of being a a trend that will benefit both cities and the suburbs going forward. Um, And I'd also, I would love to talk about some of the other things affecting investors that would, that would um, also have an effect on the housing market. So we talked a little bit about this before, George, but the Fed has indicated um, that interest rates could rise in March or will rise in March. And, you know, is that a direct effect on mortgage rates? And what is the expectation that Realtor has um, for mortgage rates over the course of 2022? 
That is a you know, million or billion dollar question on the minds of many investors as well as home buyers across the country really yeah. pondering this this you know decision right now. Um, and I'll say that obviously the Fed's uh, fund rate, right? It's a, it's a very short term rate. It's an overnight rate that, that the Fed sets at which banks borrow money or lend to each other. So there's not a direct link between that and mortgage rates. However, the Fed's monetary policy does have an impact on mortgage rates. And so when I look at what we're seeing from, you know, coming out of the Fed, number one, the Fed has indicated at this point that its main two goals, A, strong economy and low unemployment, and B, uh, contained inflation, um, are both very much on their uh, uh, radar. Unemployment is extremely low, and inflation at 7% is obviously running much higher than the Fed's preferred 2%. That means we're going to see several rate hikes this year the uh, the trickle down effect is higher rates will mean implicitly a tightening of credit at the banks and that will likely translate into um, higher credit scores tighter underwriting mm -hmm. so how that gets to the mortgage side of course is um, for a lot of borrowers uh, looking to buy um, higher rates will obviously make it more challenging for them or obviously increase the cost and the other thing I'll mention tied to the Fed, the Fed has played an incredible role in housing finance over the last two years through the bank's purchases, monthly purchases of mortgage-backed securities. It's, in a sense, facilitated the flow of capital and ensured liquidity. The Fed has been tapering those purchases and in plans to uh, wrap up that tapering by March. So we have an interesting confluence where the Fed plays a slightly, slightly uh, less involved role in that market and rates rising. So bottom line, I uh, I see mortgage rates continuing to rise. They've made quite a jump this month already. I see them continuing to rise through the remainder of the year. Um, the important thing here for buyers to keep in mind, number one, rising rates mean higher mortgage payments. So in that regard, what happens to incomes and wages this year? Are companies going to pay higher wages? So far, the indication is yes. For a lot of people, higher wages uh, are likely to offset some of the mortgage rate increases. But I think for many first-time buyers, affordability and the ability to qualify for a mortgage will become more challenging. Um, I'd like to take you back to mortgage-backed securities um, uh, because I, I'd like to sort of learn more about how that um, directly affects a home buyer, for example. So if the central bank is cutting back on buying mortgage-backed securities, does that mean then that, um, that lenders will will be less willing to loan. I mean, does that go back to what you were saying about um, uh, um, uh, lenders tightening, tightening lending, you know, uh, um, to to home buyers? Um, I guess, yeah, if you could explain that a little bit more. Certainly. So the, obviously, for for many um, banks and mortgage originators, the generally the the flow of money is they they will tend to make a loan to a borrower, right, saying you want to buy a house, here's a loan for that house. They'll basically take that loan and generally as long as it's, you know, conventional, meaning it meets certain criteria, they can pass that loan onward to, a, you know, an entity like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, who basically, um, you know, ensure that loan that it performs well. And then a lot of those loans get pulled and sold on the secondary market as mortgage-backed securities. Right. The Fed, through its involvement, has absolutely... Uh, both increased and insured liquidity in that market, meaning a lot of banks and originators were free to 
pass these loans onward to the secondary market, free up the cash, and turn around and make more loans. Right. With the Fed pulling back, obviously, there will be slightly less liquidity. So it means the private market will have to play a bigger role. And there, funds obviously compete constantly for attention between stocks, yeah. between REITs, between yeah. bonds, mortgage bonds. So I think a, a slight pullback in the volume of, of investments available for mortgage-backed securities will translate implicitly into uh, less uh, money. And for banks mostly here, there's an issue of risk, right? Do they, how much right. of the risk do they retain? So bottom line is, I do think we'll see banks becoming a little tighter with, uh, with lending, uh, you know, through various facets, whether it's higher FICOs, higher dump payments, um, you know, higher fees, whatnot. Great. And so um, we're talking, whatever the amount is that, that mortgage rates go up um, this year, I mean, would we say that 1%, say it goes up 1%, is that enough really to cool this sort of surging demand we've seen so far, you know, during the pandemic, and even we're seeing inklings of it already into 2022, is, you know, a 1% uh, increase in mortgage rates really enough to cool the U.S. housing market considerably? That's a great question. But again, here, my view is uh, nuanced, meaning on one hand, 1% increase, right? We're about 3.5%, 3.5% to 4.5% mortgage rates for 30-year fixed. Absolutely, in the short term, could have a noticeable cooling effect, if for no other reason, but there's a psychological barrier to overcome. Right. We've had now two years of very low, record low mortgage rates. So for many people who bought homes in the last two years alone, the idea of a four and a half mortgage rate, which 10 years ago was normal, the idea of a four and a half mortgage rate sounds so expensive. So that hurdle will be the first thing to overcome. And so I think that will in and of itself have a short term impact over the medium and long term. However, I do think that that both buyers and markets will readjust. When I look at the you know 2000s, 1990s, 1980s, we are still well below those uh, mortgage rates, which were you know six, eight, or double-digit percent higher. So even at four and a half percent, we're in a very comfortable environment. But I do think, given uh, the fact that here we're not only looking at first-time buyers who are going to be uh, obviously challenged at you know four and a half percent, but think repeat buyers, homeowners who are in their home at a 2.73% mortgage, will they be willing to trade that mortgage possibly for a more expensive trade-up house at four and a half? That might be a, a tall order for many of them. So I think that will also have an impact on housing transaction activity. That's really interesting. Um, I think we'll end on that note. Thank you so much, George, for being here. Um, and thank you to the audience for tuning in. A real pleasure joining you, Becky, anytime. Um, and please join us back here on Monday, January 31st, when uh, instead of a Barron's Live production, we hope you'll log in to the Barron's Supply Chain and Logistics Roundtable virtual event, where you will hear executives at Honeywell, Intel, and Invesco as they discuss the business and economic impact of global supply chain disruptions. Thank you all for listening. Stay healthy and stay safe. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.